It's how you visualize the world. It's how you conceptualize what is happening around you. The language you use, the terminology you use, the way you structure what you're doing. Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters, the industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game. The professionalization of risk management and its applicability to you, the CPO out there. I'm here with John Moss, and today we are very, very fortunate. We are going to be speaking with the one and only Dr. David Rubens, founder of the Institute for Strategic Risk Management, and of course, his own consultancy, massive, massive name in the industry. Um, what an exciting episode we're going to have today, John. Yeah, absolutely. David is a big supporter of what we're doing here at the circuit. And likewise, we've had a very close working relationship with David and ISRM and Delta training for a number of years. And it's no stranger to us, you know, what, what a great speaker he is, what, what a great thought leader on the subject of risk management and the industry in general. So the hardest thing about having a guest like David is knowing where to start. Indeed. But, you know, that professionalization piece, I think, will capture a lot of people's imaginations because it's a nice, positive image out there. And, you know, if, if I am on the ground level, if I am new in my career and I'm thinking, where do I go? Well, the professionalization of my own craft is going to be in my mind. And and, 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 you know, doing some sort of risk management as a profession, surely that's that's quite a pull factor, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you'd think it would be maybe more obvious or more stated within the protector's career path. And I think that's something we'll get into today. But, you know, it makes me reflect on my own career. And actually, the first time that I undertook formal risk management training was purely because I was operating in a capacity internationally where overnight the rules changed and the title that I was operating under changed to risk manager the next day. And I went, hang on a minute, I'm not, I, I'm not a risk manager, or at least I didn't consider myself to be one simply because I hadn't done the formal training. So I, I went and put myself on, on an available course got trained up. And the first thing I realized was, well, actually, the, the tools of risk management can be utilized from day one of being in this industry, no matter which badge you wear and what level you operate at. And of course, those tools help you see yourself in the bigger picture, don't they? And when you start to see yourself as part of the whole, then you know, your day gets smoother, your day gets easier, you see why you're developing X, Y, and Z for the entire project. Um, I, I think this is fantastic. And, and of course, it would be remiss of me not to mention, you know, the great work of the ISRM. We have had uh, Joe Saunders uh, from, from the, um, you know, Australian chapter. We've, of course, had Ivor Terrett, of, you know, many hats, including the Israeli uh, chapter. But I've uh, had uh, Dr. Gav Snyder, uh, as well as Ken Smith on a number of uh, different events. I'm, I mention them because I love this cross pollination. I want to do a shout out to them because they've shown us a lot of love. And, and I think that's one of uh, David Rubens's themes. 
collaboration and cross-pollination, which is why this partnership uh, has been so great. Um, just, a, just a snapshot, if you will, uh, John, of, of the BBA and ISOM uh, partnership. What, what, have we, what have we been doing together and what should our membership and listenership you know, really know? It all goes back and builds upon that gap between a protector coming into the industry and the length of time before which they either put themselves on some formal risk management training or realize that they have a skill shortage in that area. And so our relationship with ISRM was purely to bring a trusted source to our members, to our readers and our listeners a lot sooner in their career development. That makes absolute sense. And so that keeps us relevant. That keeps our listeners and, 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 and members relevant, which is why this is such an exciting episode to have. So uh, without further ado, let's talk to Dr. David Rubens and look at the professionalization of risk management. And now let's meet one of the contributors to the Circuit magazine. professionalizing risk management today we're here with the one and only dr david rubens founder and executive director of the isrm institute of strategic risk management as well as md and ceo of delta training solutions um what a pleasure to have you on john and myself we are excited to have you how are you doing i'm doing very well thank you um i i can't believe we're in february but besides that um, everything is going very well. Thank you very much. It is zooming fast, isn't it? It's uh, it's it's a, an action-packed year, and in fact, many people are you know coming good on their commitment to further development and training in this year, 2022, which is a very good uh, you know segue into sort of asking our three quick-fire questions. We're interested in the professionalization of risk management, and so number one, what is your biggest gripe? Uh, with the industry as it stands or, or what problem do you think we need to solve or professionalize i think the biggest problem is that we as an industry and as a sector don't recognize or respect our own professionalization you know i mean we i've been having this conversation for 30 years i was on the very first home office steering committee i think about 1996 1997 we spoke about the professionalization in the private security sector um I don't think we've achieved it. I just, I just don't. I think um, we've done a lot of things. At the high end, we've had a revolutionary change. You know, now you have master's degrees, you have, you know, chartered security professionals, you have a whole range of higher end professional development programs. At the lower level, we've had absolutely no progress whatsoever in the last twenty five years. Okay. No, that's a, that's a, that's a crucial that's a crucial point. Um, but. On, on a more happy note, what about you? Where does your passion for this actually come from? Why are you leading the way in so many chapters around the world for the ISRM? Where does your passion for this come from? The answer is I don't know, but it's a word that people have always used about me. You know, from, from, from the very first beginning, I was on the very first Westminster Council Door Supervisor Training Program trainer list back in 1992. And people have always spoken about 
the passion I have. And I didn't like that. I thought, no, I don't want to be known as passionate. I want to be known as professional. Um, but I can't overcome it. It is something I am passionate about. Um, I've been very lucky. I've, I've spent many parts of my life with fantastic teachers, people who I respect until today. Um, and for some, for some reason, I have no idea why, um, I've been very lucky that I've sort of gone through the professionalization from my perspective, you know, having done door supervisor courses and close protection courses, then a consultancy, then my master's, then a doctorate, would you believe? Um, so over the last 25 years, I don't think I've ever, I've never been on the first wave, but I've always been on the second wave. There've always been other people who've done stuff before me, but I've always ridden the second wave. For example, the second wave of close protection training programs, the second wave of getting a master's program. Um, and besides that, why me? I have no idea. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's very humble, uh, very good explanation, I think. What about then those out there who are uninitiated in risk management? And particularly, I'm thinking, you know, what you refer to as not the executive directors, but the, uh, the sort of more ground level of the industry. What should those more uninitiated colleagues better understand about risk management as a, as, as, as a discipline? I think it's that. It, it is a discipline. It should be done like any other discipline. You, you have a program and you stick to it. It takes time. You know, you see, you see things on LinkedIn, people say, well, how can I get a job? People won't take me on. And the truth is you've got to hang around. You've got to stick around. You've got to serve your time. Um, the advice I always give to people is hang around with good people. You know, if you want to, if, if you want to do good stuff, hang around with good people, that's probably one of the best things you can do. The other thing is do training, get qualifications. And people say, well, what can that teach me? It can teach you a lot. Um, qualifications don't get you a job, but not having qualifications stops you getting a job when you get to a certain level. Um, and it is just part of your professional development. You know, if you're, if you're getting older and getting some more experience, getting those letters after your name or doing those programs brings you benefit. Um, and so, so I would say in, the truth is invest in yourself, invest in yourself. Good training and professional qualifications is never a waste. And it doesn't just give you skills, it gives you the opportunity for a different future. You're creating a new possibility, a life possibility for yourself, which you will not have if you don't have those qualifications. And the thing about it is, is that as you go through your career, you will find that the people you're going to, to either work with or for, they will have qualifications. So if they do have qualifications, they're much more likely to take people on who also have qualifications than if you don't have qualifications. You should see it as a part of the selection. It just allows you to say, yes, I've done that. I'm, I'm part of that group which do have it rather than that group which don't have it. And when you do have it, then you, you know, you, you pass that almost barrier to entry. And I think it's, a, it's, it's one of those two things, A, hang around really good people, and B, invest in yourself, will build a future for yourself. Fantastic. So much that I want to sink my teeth into there, David, but I think I'll start with uh, invest in yourself because, you know, I would say that's quite a big motto of what we do, both with the associations and here on the Circuit Podcast. You know, we're always trying to bring 
uh, new perspectives to our listeners. And obviously having the benefit of experts like yourself is uh, a great opportunity to do that. So I want to dive into this and uh, I guess I just want to jump straight in and, and ask you, do you think there's a shortage of risk management skills within the industry at large? I think there's a shortage of risk management skills within the world at large. Um, you look at the way that the UK government has handled COVID. There's a lack of risk management skills there, which has an incredible impact. You look at a whole load of other issues and there's a failure of risk management. And absolutely, there is a, there is a, a, a lack of risk management skills within this sector, which is part of the overarching lack of, again, professionalization and respect for professionalism. I think it is changing. I mean, we mentioned offline before two people who you've had on your podcast previously, which is Ivor Terrett um, and um, Dr. Gabriel Schneider, both of whom I've known for many, many years and I consider as good friends. But above that, I consider them as, as, as world-leading professionals. You know, if you want to look at what a professional looks like, those people embody it for me and you can see what they've done and what they have achieved. So um, if I can just take a couple of minutes, I want to tell a story that somebody told me, which just encapsulated it. And it was about doing training programs. And they said, basically, it's doing a training program is a bit like walking through the forest. You're walking through the forest. Every day you walk through the forest. You go, Look, there's trees. Okay, trees, it's nice. And then you walk through the forest with somebody who really knows the forest. And he goes, oh, look, you can see, you always know where south is in the forest because moss always grows on the side of the tree towards the sun. So in the northern hemisphere, the moss is always on the south side. And you say, I didn't even know there was moss. Now I can see on every tree moss. I know where the south is. He said, you see those little shoots? Just the tops being eaten off, yeah? Deer, small deer. The ones that have been grabbed out, badger make. That's a badger. So you know now if there's a badger or a deer, otherwise it's been taken out. You see that tree? Larch tree. What lives in a larch tree? Owls. So you look up, you see? Owl forest, owl nest. What do owls do? They drop pellets. Yes, when they eat, they drop pellets. Full of nutrients. Who eats the pellets? Mice. So if you want meat quick, look for a larch tree, look for an owl's nest, put a trap down, bang, you've got yourself three mice in an hour. The next day, you walk through the forest, completely different. Your experience and your engagement with the forest is completely different. The forest is the same, has not changed. But your recognition of what you are looking at is. And when you get to a certain level of professionalism, it is your ability to make sense out of those signals. And that comes in incredibly important to things like close protection. Whereas what is the difference between a good close protection officer and a less good? It is your ability to read the signals. It's the ability to see ahead, to look into the future, to understand things. And so there's no magic and there's no voodoo. But if something like that can change it, and often it's just somebody saying something with new terminology, a new word or a new analogy like I've just given. Um, and I think that is, that is, that's where incredible value can be added very, very quickly. Um, and I think one of the things that we do not really have is we still don't really have a body of knowledge, you know, an accepted body of knowledge. People do things in their own way. And we, we know the open view and the closed box, and we know these sorts of things and driving skills, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look out on the market, and this is up to the top level, who are the people getting 
senior positions in global corporate organizations, ex-soldiers, ex-Lieutenant Colonel here and ex-Colonel there, or Chief Superintendent this. And you go, well, I really respect what you did, but I don't understand why that makes you a corporate security manager. And certainly I don't understand why that makes you a strategic security corporate That's a different skill. And so at the top level, we're doing that. And at the bottom level, we're doing that as well. We're taking people on who, in my opinion, without any disrespect to anybody, do not bring the same level of professionalism to the game as anybody else does. Now, those people you're looking after, if you look at everybody else around them, their tax advisors are the best in the world. Their marketing people are the best in the world. The people who cook in their corporate kitchens are the best in the world. Why do they have second rate, third rate, cheap security? I don't know. But my feeling is that that is hopefully changing but I've been saying that for 30 or well, 30 years, so I'm not sure if it is. But people like Ivor Terry, people like Gabriel Schneider and others like them, and yourself, John, who I've known for many, many years, and I have seen you and the contribution you've made to the sector. And you know, do which we, the only thing we can do, which is try to move the dial. You know, all we can do is try to move the dial a bit, which you've done. Um, and then you just hope that the good people come with you and the others with some good luck, God bless them. They'll go their own path. Absolutely. That's all we can try and do. I really liked the walking through the woods uh, analogy. And the picture you painted is certainly a very compelling reason for why uh, we should open our eyes more, why we should understand what we're seeing and interacting with. But why do you think there's such a shortage in the first place? Is it that the, the compelling arguments and reasons for doing good training in risk management aren't made uh, uh, well enough as, as well as what you've just stated there or is it uh it's the shortage coming from training uh lack of qualifications uh career paths not being structured enough what's your thoughts on that the, the truth is that security in general is considered and it still is overarchingly, a low-skilled, low-paid, low-status job. I mean, that's what it is. Um, and almost all contracts are taken on a lowest-cost basis. You know, you, you'll argue over, argue over 50p an hour. Um, and certainly, if you look at the lower levels, frontline people, they're making less money now than, than we were 20 years ago, to be honest. Um, so the first thing is, without compunction, there's almost no, there's no push in order for people to do additional training, especially when you're a lot of security, especially close, close protection, as you know, John, there's very few people making a full-time profession out of that. You know, it's a case by case, job by job, contract by contract thing. So to invest a couple of thousand pounds, you know, that's, that's a serious commitment when, when you're not sure where the comeback's gonna be, gonna be on that. Um, but the thing about it is, is, is that the world we're living in is becoming more complex. There's no doubt about it. And so therefore, we need to be able to bring something to the table which is appropriate to the risk environment our principles are operating in. Um, and I think more and more that is happening. I, th I, th I think, you know, nowadays the people doing this stuff, they know about it, they understand it. There's some really, you know, we've spoken maybe disparagingly, there are some really good players out there, some really good professional players who bring honor and integrity and discipline and professionalism to the game. 
um, and all you can do is hope that that gets recognized and and to support those people so when we're doing stuff we should be supporting those people as well but david in terms of supporting those people if i put my mind in you know the frame of mind of uh, an operator who might be not very far along in their career um would i treat risk management training the same way i might treat a master's degree it, it might not get me a job now but as you said you know later down the line it will differentiate you like in my life actually nobody has ever really asked about my master's or my undergrad and no one's you know i'm a bit disappointed in that respect but for the poor operator that is thinking where should i spend my budget it, would you say risk management is something that yes you might do now but you're going to have it return rewards later or will they see something now as as, as they are in, in in their operational career that's a good that's a good that's a good question i think that both both apply you both have immediate feedback or return on investment if you wish and of course longer term one of the things that changes when you do good training is it's not just what you know but it's how you visualize the world it's how you conceptualize what is happening around you, the language you use, the terminology you use, the way you structure what you're doing. And so if you go in and somebody says, okay, what do you think your role as a close protection officer is? And they say, well, to look after the principal, and that's fine. And then you do a course and they say, well, what do you think the role of a close protection officer is? Well, I think it's to create a safe environment where the principal can live their life in as normal way as possible. In, in accordance with the perceived level of threat, with the ability to move up or down, depending on the changing risk environment we're operating in, that is a different level of conceptualization of what you're doing. And I think that that will get recognized in the fact that you have a deeper, stronger, more sophisticated, more developed understanding. The second thing about it is, is um, to go back to building a career. You don't do the training to get the job you're doing now. You do the training to get the next job or the job after that. You know, you're building for the future. One of the words that one of the words we all use is resilience. It's, the word is always resilience. Resilience is something you have to pay forward for. If you're not resilient, five minutes before something happens or the day before something happens, you don't suddenly become resilient. You don't suddenly become fit. You don't suddenly learn how to dance. You don't suddenly learn a language. You pay forward. And I think that in your career, you pay forward. And so you're thinking about well, what is a job I want to do five years time. Now I imagine I know that John and myself and probably you, Pelin. I imagine if you look at the people you were hanging around with 15, 20 years ago, and you can say, okay, out of those hundred people, how many have moved on? Maybe 20. And then you say, well, okay, how many have moved on in the next five years? Well, maybe three or four. But in order to move on, you have to pay forward. You have to invest now. Um, I, I did my doctorate, which is something I'm very proud of. Uh, 28 people started on that program, paying full fees, which was a lot of money. Four people finished, four people. Now, so basically that's, that's a selection process like any other selection. And the reason that I do what I do now, that I do now with the ISRO is because of my doctorate. If I'd stuck at my master's, I would not be doing this now. Now, I didn't know that was going to happen when I did my doctorate, but I trusted that if you do good stuff, good stuff will come out of it. And so you're investing in the future. And then you have to decide, well, what are you going to do with it? 
Well, indeed, and I think I think that's that's key because if we can if we can help paint the picture or the vision, the pull factor for today's operator, then they can say, ah, yes, I'm going to be a CSO in the future. And yes, there is a massive jump between private and corporate security, but um, maybe maybe that's a painting we can do. But at the same time, people are suggesting that tomorrow's CSO, for example, doesn't have to have any security background whatsoever. They could come from another discipline. I, I, I'm not personally a fan of that angle, but some people have put it out there. Some people have said, well, why don't you just get the actuarial scientists to turn their guns onto some other form of risk management, which is where we are? Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts of you know this this super leader of the future that's got all sorts of hats and 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 things. What do we think they could look like, and and could a CPO uh, aspire to be that leader? Many organisations are asking themselves, and certainly within the academic world, I'm involved in a number of dialogues which are saying, "What is it that we need to do? How do we create?" As you said, and I think we have to differentiate between the chief security officer and the chief risk officer. I think those are two separate branches. But that's okay. Um, but I, I certainly think that um, you need to bridge, you need to be able to bridge those two gaps, the operational side of things, and then the management side of things. Um, and in order to do that, you've got to fit into that world. You know, the, one of the things about a close protection officer is you have to be able to fit into the environment that your principal is operating. And if they go to the opera house, you need to go to the opera house. And if they go down down and funky rave in, in New York, you've got to be able to fit in there as well. And you can't do both. You know, you need to know the world that you're living in. Um, so I think that the conversation we've been having for 30 years, literally for 30, not for 30, certainly for 25 years, is how do we get our voices heard in the boardroom? You know, how do we, how do we get there? Um, and the truth of the matter is, and I've been saying this for 25 years, is we need to belong there. You know, we, we need to belong there. You need to wear the right shoes. You need to go in with the right, you know, tie on. And you need to be able to speak properly in the right terminology. And I think that's true within any context that one of the things absolutely that you've got to get right is that when you walk into that room for the first time, whatever you do, whether you're CEO or CSO or somebody just coming onto the team for the first time, when you walk into that room, the people have got to look up and they've got to believe you. They've got to believe you. And it's not because you're bluffing or because you're putting a show on or because you're putting your shoulders out. It's because you have that confidence and that integrity that you know how to do your job properly. One of the major differences, and if you, you're welcome to cut this out if you don't like it, but one of the major differences is between now and 25 years ago was that 25 years ago, 60% of the people I met were wankers. I mean, they were just, they were assholes. You know, and you say, man, I don't want to hang on. You know, do I want you on my team? No, I do not. Do I want you around my principal? No, I do not. Do I want to do business with you? No, I do not. I can genuinely, I do this all over the world. I can genuinely, genuinely not remember the last time I met someone I didn't like. I can genuinely not remember it because you get to a certain level and being nice is part of the package. You know, people have got to like you. People have got to think that you're professional because everybody's under pressure, everybody. And to bring you onto my team is a high risk bet. Because if you blow it and you turn up late or you turn up, you know, whatever it might be, you know, if you don't in the wrong shoes, that's not your problem. That loses me the contract. Can I tell a story about 
yeah, you're welcome to go. I tell a story about JP Morgan, which I've told before and other things, but I think it encapsulates it. We were given the, 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 the task of looking after um, Jamie Dimon, the head of JP Morgan. Um, and he was going to be in six countries, no, nine countries over six days in the Middle East. And they wanted from us a three car team plus a team leader in nine airports all over the Middle East for six days. No security, just, and so wherever he was flying with his Learjet and flying in here, flying in there, we would have a three car team. It was a great, I mean, fantastic job, you know. This was 20 years ago. So anyway, we had that, set it all up, had all the teams on, everybody radioing, keep on record. Jamie was flying here, Jamie was flying there. Everything went well. Six days later, wheels up, end up, thank you very much. I spoke to um, the guy in London, the head of security, and he said, right, David, come in for a chat. I said, came in. He said, well, first of all, David, thank you very much. Great job. By the way, Jamie says, this is Jamie Diamond, right? CEO of, of JP Morgan's meeting principals and presidents. And he said, Jamie said, day number three, driver number two, top button missing. And not only did he notice that, but he put it in his report because his attitude was, I thought you said these guys were good. But if you said these guys were good, why the hell is he turning up with a button missing? And what else do we need to worry about? Now, I always give that as an example. A, that's the level you need to work at. And B, I love that. And I, I said, I said, listen, first of all, my apologies, and I will speak to the team leader about that on the ground. Second, I mean, to be honest, I mean, if that's the only thing that went wrong, I'll accept that, you know, I mean, fair enough. But it shouldn't have happened. And my attitude is, mate, you want to be in this world? You've got to live like that. That's where you've got to live at. That's minimum. That's, that gives you a chance. And that's true on everything. The, I remember teaching 30 years ago, 30 years ago, I used to say there's three things you've got to get right. Turn up on time, wear the right clothes, and when you brush your teeth in the morning, think, what's one thing I can do better today? And if you keep doing that, you're in the room with a chance. Well, I like that a lot, David. And it brings us kind of back round to the early stages of the career. So we've we kind of went on a trajectory there to see where not just risk management training and qualifications can take us, but just generally planning a career and having that foresight and that got me to thinking you know there's a lot of people who come into the industry either with a military or police background for myself it was the military and when i when i first joined up i i wouldn't have had as a private any vision at that age of myself becoming an rsm for instance and and i guess no one does really and so Probably we would have no RSMs if it wasn't for the fact that the military has created a structure whereby you, you start taking on the training incrementally, as you suggested before you need it, you know, at, at, but at a time when that level of training is relevant and you keep progressing. So, so then we come into the security industry. You know, even though we've been part of this system with this very successful formula, for training people incrementally to take you throughout a career and build on that step by step. We don't necessarily employ that. And, and I can understand certain factors for that. The, the career progression isn't as obvious in the security industry. It's more competitive. And of course, you know, you're paying for it out of your own pocket. But, but thinking of that comparison, that that's really a good analogy for anybody with that sort of background to say, well, 
you know, this is how I can take myself from one place to another and how perhaps I should be thinking about having a career in the industry. And I know you were involved in early discussions with the SIA and I know you voiced that you haven't exactly been overjoyed at uh, what transpired and that, you know, the SIA have blown what could have been a very good opportunity to create something. But, you know, going back to the basic training required to become a frontline operator in this industry. And of course, this is relevant across the world and across the pond, even though the same structure isn't there to, you know, to our brothers and sisters across in the US. But do you think at that, at that basic level, we should be incorporating uh, risk management early into the protectors training? I mean, I mean, it sounds like a no brainer, but of course, you know, it, it is a big meaty subject. And so if we do, how would we go about that? Would it be something that should be mandatory and compulsory as part of the training or something that should be left down to the operator to progress with once they've completed their basic training? Again, again, John, I mean, really, I mean, insightful questions and, and questions which have significance. I'm going to jump to the at the end, then I'm going to come back. If you look at the protect duty that's just come out, which has basically come out of Fegan's law, Martin's law, and it says that now venues have the responsibility to do a risk assessment. And you go, well, surely they should have done that before. And now they're saying, well, who does the protect duty in Martin's law apply to? Does it apply, for example, to parks? Does it apply to beaches? Does it apply to open areas? I'm saying, well, is there a risk there? I mean, do you think that there's a possibility an attack can be made in a park or, you know, or a beach? You know, well, yes, there is. Then why wouldn't you want to do a risk assessment? So there's a disconnect between what we say that we want to do and the reality of what needs to be done. Because what needs to be done is very, very simple and very, very clear. It's non-negotiable. We need to keep our people and our places safe. That's the underlying thing we need to do about it. I... I said back, I mean, as you said, back in the 1990s, when we were first talking about this, I wanted the door supervisor program to be a professional development program. That you come in, you do certain professional skills, you have a level one stage, and then one year later, you do a level two stage, which is a team leader course, and then you do a venue managers course. 30 years later, that hasn't happened. I mean, basically, you come in. It's not a professional training program. It's a license to work program, which is minimalistic in skills. I think absolutely everybody should be taught how to do a basic risk management thing within your own venue, within your own venue. What are the risks? And to start thinking about that, to take proactive ownership and to give people the skills. What we saw when the SIA came in there, they gave the ownership of writing those programs to various people who put their own stuff in there. And it was absolutely ridiculous. I mean, there are people talking about psychological things like that. You know, I can't remember now, but the language was just wrong. And they were trying to impress everybody with how clever they were, rather than say, what does our door supervisor on the ground need to keep people safe? Um, and I think we still haven't answered those questions. I mean, you know, you look at the SIA, and I haven't been involved with the SIA for many, many years. But, you know, you still see every couple of years they try and rewrite this or they try and rewrite that. It's like sticking bits of piece of plasticine on. That's not how you create an integrated body of knowledge. And it's not how you create a body of knowledge that allows people to create 
at the start of their career an understanding of the professionalism. I mean, there's no question about it. Anybody who comes to fit your kitchen sink in has more training and qualifications than a door supervisor does. There's no question about it. You know, they've been through a training program. They've been through an apprenticeship program. They've been, you know, they have skills which they can demonstrate. Um, in my opinion, the, IS, the SIA has never achieved that. Um, and I, I think it's, it was a missed opportunity. So, David, it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm interested then to ask a nice uh, sort of question that, that sort of encompasses a lot of what we've been talking about. What is the ISRM doing to further this um, and, and plug the gaps where, where perhaps some, some, some jurisdictions you know, have gaps? Um, and, and, and of course, it, it's great to, to highlight uh, the, the, the kind support that, uh, that you've shown for, for, the, for the BBA and the Sergamec scene. I think what we've done is we've created a platform, we've offered a platform. Uh, and so we now have, as, as you know, pretty well everything I do, and that's both Delta, the training, and ISRM, and even my previous consultancies. Um, everything I do is collaborative. I believe in collaboration, absolutely. And we go out of the way to make ourselves available for collaboration. So we now have, um, we work with people like IFPO, frontline um, officers, protection officers. We work with National Association of Healthcare Security, Association of University Chief Security Officers, um, Institute of Hotel Security Management, UK Crowd Management Association, et cetera, et cetera. We work with all of these organizations to try and create a platform and a, 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 an opportunity and a space where good things can happen. And I think that each of these organizations individually has an understanding of the value and the benefit that increased professionalization can bring. Um, what they're often missing is a pathway or a, or a structured framework which will allow that to happen. Because of course, everybody is incredibly busy. Everybody's under pressure, everybody's stressed. Nobody has any spare bandwidth. Um, so I think that the first thing to do is to have, have that conversation and then over time, that will develop forward. So I, th I think what we're doing is we're creating a space we have, for example, on LinkedIn, we have the Frontline Security Alliance. People can just join up on that and have a conversation, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're trying, trying to quite actively, collaboratively, create networks and frameworks and structures that allow those conversations to be had. And then if you are interested in that conversation, you've got somewhere to go to. You know, if, you're, if you think that either you're interested in that or maybe you could benefit from it or you could contribute to it, then there's, there's, a, there's a home for you, there's a place for you. So I think probably that's, that we could say that's what we're, we're trying to achieve from this side. That's fantastic, you know, David, and uh, one of the big reasons why we wanted to firm up, solidify our relationship uh, with the association and the magazine with the SIRM was because we realized clearly there's, there's a gap here between the two factors, between uh, operators coming into the industry and at the point at which they realize that risk management skills are useful as well as the train as well as the qualifications in terms of their career prospects and so to be able to begin that education process as early as possible I, I thought that was fundamental and in, in terms of uh, our reach and my my personal knowledge there was nobody better for us to connect with than yourself on that and in drawing this conversation to a close i think it would be really interesting to get your thoughts on where you think 
risk and, and the threats are in the current landscape. Obviously, we've seen a lot of change over the last few years. We've had uh, the Manchester Arena incident, there's the storming of the capital, and of course, we're just coming through a pandemic. So as we're maybe starting to come out of that now, where would you say people should be focusing their attentions uh, globally on, on different risk factors at the moment? I think what we're seeing is the growth of instability, in general instability. I mean, you can get on a plane anywhere in the world. By the time you get off that plane, they could have changed the rules. You know, I mean, you know, you could be going into a flying into a lockdown. You could be not be able to come back. We see, for example, more and more um, countries are very quick to close down the internet, close down communications, close down borders. Um, you can be caught. You can be caught up in instability anywhere in the world. There is nowhere in the world that is more than twenty-four hours away from instability. I mean, you look at Holland for Christ's sake. I mean, Holland went nuts. You know, the end of last year, and suddenly having riots. You know, and, and, and fighting the police in Holland, for God's sake. Um, so I think that it is the ability to, to basically, and it comes back to it, um, John, there's no magic, there's no voodoo. It is the ability to give a professional service. That is what it is about. It is the ability to understand that, as it has always been, to understand the life and lifestyle of your principal and behave accordingly, and to have an understanding of the risk environment you're operating in because things can change very fast and the truth of the matter is that anybody who's working with a principal who is using personal protection has to recognize the fact that at some stage you're going to have to make a move you might make a move now making a move is not knocking somebody over making a move is getting them out of a building okay do you know where the back entrance is do you know where that leads to one of the questions we ask people a lot to see if they're any good is, do you know where you are? And it is unbelievable how many times people cannot answer that question. And if you don't know where you are, if you cannot tell me where you are, my friend, one day, that's going to get into trouble. That's going to get into trouble. So getting those basics right as a matter of course, turning up on time, thinking about what you're doing, knowing where you are, understanding the local culture um, etc etc um understanding local culture is incredibly important um there was something recently about people working in the west bank in israel my friends if you don't know how to work in the west bank do not claim that you can go into the west bank and work in the west bank because you cannot and you're going to start a lot more trouble than you're going to solve so it is basically it as it always is is be good be nice and when you get an opportunity over deliver and hang around and look after people do favors you know there's nothing wrong with it but do do the basic things do the good things and and and, and trust in yourself invest in yourself that's it fantastic sentiments and 100 made the case for professionalizing risk management just as much of the industry wants to professionalize itself uh, from barbarians to the boardroom as that uh, book uh, title sort of goes um it, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on um I'm, I'm really excited about our strategic partnership um i i really love uh, meeting all of the different isrm chapter heads uh, there's too many to to mention in one go uh, but uh, but 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 it's it's fantastic each time 
Uh, so from John and myself, uh, this has been a fantastic edition of the Circuit Magazine podcast, and we look forward to more collaborations with you, David. Well, I feel motivated to undertake further risk management training. I think it's crucial for you, wherever you are in your career, to say, you know what, further down the line, I'm going to need this. But actually, right now, it shows me where I am and how important my work is. What have you taken from it today, John? I really enjoyed David's analogy of walking through the forest and, you know, being able to get yourself from A to B, from one side of the forest to the other is maybe what a lot of us are doing in our protected careers. And it's only once you realize that actually there's so much more going on around you and so much more uh, that you can be aware of that the value of getting those risk management skills earlier in your career uh, is understood. It is, isn't it? Well, talking about getting value earlier, um, we had a great number of new professionals come to the 7th Annual Executive Security and Close Protection Technology Forum last week in person, um, which I think is a great segue to sort of celebrate the industry coming together. Um, I was very pleased to see you in person again, which, you know, we haven't done in a few months. Uh, how, how, how is everything for you? Yeah, it was fantastic. I, I, I really enjoyed the day. It was so good to be in a room with so many colleagues, so many friends, uh, so many familiar faces that I hadn't seen for such a long time. And also so many new faces as well. And a lot of those were part of our community. It was really great to hear so much fantastic feedback uh, about the podcast and the magazine. And it's the kind of feedback that you only get when you're in person, when you're, when you're stood looking at somebody face to face. So that, that it was a brilliant day for me. And of course, underpinning all that was a, a fantastic day of education and learning as well. And, and we did we did try to bring some new topics, some bold topics, uh, which which did generate a lot of debate, shall we say. Um, and, and it was particularly nice to see, as, as you say, new faces and old faces come together and, 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 and debate it. I know that at least two people joined the BBA uh, just uh, recently, and, and, and this was their first sort of exposure uh, to the community this way. So, so, so that was lovely to see. And then, of course, we had some fantastic speakers, uh, including Ivor Terrett, Max Segal, uh, Jackie Davis, uh, Mike O'Neill. But we also had uh, colleagues from across the pond, uh, Brian Leake, uh, Brennan Shafakani, um, and, uh, and, and then in the afternoon, I thought it was quite nice, a uh, long-standing friend, we had Colin Singer, uh, you know, talking with me a little bit about uh, canines and, uh, and, and so on. So, so, so a lot of food for thought, a lot of um, interesting topics and interesting speakers, um, and, and it was fantastic to see everyone in person. And by the way, just as John mentioned, we are very keen to hear the feedback. Now, a lot of people are delighted, I, I would hope, I'm, I'm just assuming this, are delighted by what we put out, but then they then don't give us the feedback about how delighted they are. So it was really nice to get that. Um, but, but I guess what I'm saying is, you, the listener, you're, you're, you're sitting, walking, running uh, out there listening to this, um, do get in touch. Uh, good, bad, ugly. Uh, we want to hear uh, all about it and your suggestions. So 
John, I know we also received a few articles from uh, the event, so thank you very much. You know who you are. It's uh, fantastic that you're now contributing. Um, but what have we got coming up that uh, that you want people to sort of be aware of? Well, you mentioned the articles there. Yeah, we, we have pulled in a, f a few good articles and we were in the final um, the final stages of production with issue 61, which is about to go out. But uh, I, I've actually held things up slightly just so that we could get one of those articles in there because it's a fantastic piece. And I'm really excited about it. And I, and I just wanted to get that out there uh, sooner. So if you're waiting on issue 61, it is going to be uh, a few days delayed, but don't worry, it will be worth the wait. Worth the wait indeed. And, you know, I love how we're drawing from, you know, different people's experiences and, and, and people are people are really writing about new things as well as things that you might expect. Um, but it was it was fantastic to see everybody. I know some people haven't seen each other in in, in two years. Uh, so 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 thank you for making the trip. We had we had colleagues from Europe, colleagues from the States, one from Asia, at least. Um, so so definitely going to build on that. And of course, we are planning our next virtual uh, circuit magazine event on a very relevant topic. I'm very much hopeful that it's very much relevant to today's uh, podcast guest, Dr. David Rubens. Uh, but we will release more on that as details come through. But thank you very much for being such an engaging community. Uh, NABA Protector app and the BBA Connect app are really lively. And people, of course, from the owners, you know, shared some fantastic photos and uh, testimony. So keep that going. We know that you are a part of this community. You know that we're listening to you as well as us talking to you on this podcast. So keep it going, keep listening, and we look forward to welcoming you on another fantastic edition of the Circuit Magazine podcast. You have been listening to the Circuit Magazine podcast. Be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode.